Let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're studying the uh, second book of the Bible. We've been doing that for a little while up to this point. We just finished the Ten Commandments. And so as we move ahead in the passage, we're going to encounter from here forward various expressions of case law. You might say this, everything from here forward is kind of an explanation of how the Ten Commandments are to be lived out in a moral and civil society. The laws tell us something about the heart of the lawgiver. And so we're going, to res- we're going to start this morning with a response from God's people, those who have heard his voice, those who have seen the effects of his presence. And so we pick up at chapter 20. We'll read verses 18 through 26. And remember that this is God's word written. Uh, it is not man's thoughts about God, but rather God's word to his people. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with you, to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Oh God, how desperately we need the ministry of your Holy Spirit. For so many things in this life distract us and give our ears, attention, and so many of those things are words that are not true. So many distractions are things which consume our attention. And now we pray that you would focus our attention on your word, that you would give to us the ears to hear what your spirit says. And Father, again, would you wield an ordinary sinful crooked stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus. Make yourself known, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those first nine commandments are written in such a way that outward obedience is, in a sense, measurable. Uh, Did you actually build an idol to worship? Did you remember to keep the Sabbath day holy? Did you murder or steal or lie? And so if you came to the Ten Commandments and you had no tenderness of heart, it would be possible for a careless reader to walk through the first nine and and feel rather confident, thinking to himself, I'm doing fairly well. God saved a good one here. I'm sure he's glad to have me on his team. But most of you in a figurative sense, have been sitting with God's people at the base of Mount Sinai for a number of weeks. And by now you know that none of the commands are really external only. 
But if somebody was to have that wrong conclusion, if they were to come through those first nine, it would be impossible to get past number 10 and think, well, I guess I've been a fairly obedient one. The reason is that the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, is a commandment that cannot be measured externally. It's entirely internal. And it's meant by God to expose the deep sinfulness of our hearts so that no sincere seeker, no servant of God could ever walk away and say, yes, good, yep, I'm doing it. God's going to love me for my obedience. And so then when Jesus comes and he teaches that anger is murder, that lust is adultery, that greed is stealing, when the Apostle Paul comes along and says that coveting is the same as ordinary run-of-the-mill bowing down to an idol, it is so that you will know in your heart the very concept that we read in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. By works of the law, no human being would ever be justified in the sight of God. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What's the point? The more you study the law, the more desperate you become. The Hebrew people are not standing at the base of Mount Sinai because they've got a, a, a past record of obedience. They've been brought here. Because God chose to place his love upon them. By grace alone, he's the one who saved them out of slavery. And they are concerned. Having heard his law, they they have to recognize, if this relationship is going to hinge on my obedience, then I am going to be crushed under the weight of Mount Sinai. In the Bible, obedience doesn't lead to forgiveness of sins. But forgiveness of sins does lead to a kind of new obedience. And so we see in this passage that if you have been saved by faith in Christ from the condemnation of judgment, then your relationship with the Lord must become your first priority. Today we'll talk about a healthy fear and then acceptable worship. We'll start with a healthy fear. So in each of our points this morning, we're going to harvest three principles that are taught in the passage. And so if you're a note taker and you're looking in the bulletin, that's what those bullet points are for. And the first bullet point is this. When it comes to your posture toward the Lord, your first impulse may not be the right impulse. Take a look at verse 18 again. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And so, you know, don't you, that the Bible teaches what is true, and it teaches us how to respond to that truth. But is this, is this a right response? Exodus scholars are are all over the place. In answering that question, should they be afraid? Is it right to tremble? Is it right to stand far off? Is it right to demand that someone else should speak to them instead of God? Are they right to think that God's voice would be enough to to kill them? On one hand, you remember chapter 19. Before the Lord descended on Mount Sinai, Moses set those boundaries around the mountain And God said, don't break through those boundaries to come near to me. And then one chapter later, they've heard God's voice. And they're so scared that the boundaries seem unnecessary. 
It's worth mentioning that later on in the Old Testament, whenever the voice of God is heard, it's like a trumpet blast. And it is always pronounced in such a way that it is deafening and painful to the ears of mankind. And so on one hand, you have this summons to come out to the foot of the mountain and listen to God's voice. And yet, hearing God's voice, they're they're seized with terror. Secondly, the sights. That word flashes is not the same word that's been used to describe lightning up to this point. In fact, this is a word that has not been seen in the Scriptures since Genesis chapter 15, where God made a covenant with, with Abram. Do you remember the story? It was amidst flashes and smoke and a fire pot that God showed to Abram, I am with you in presence. Exodus 20 flashes. It is a reminder to them that God is with them in presence. But why are they not comforted? Why are they not comforted by the presence of God? Well, Alec Motier, I think, says this so well. They forgot the pillar of cloud which had meant all the way from Egypt that they were the Lord's pilgrims, that they were under his care. They saw what they saw with their own eyes, but really they failed to see. Likewise, he goes on to say that the trumpet was the voice of God inviting them to come to him, giving them permission to approach. And then Motir says their fear was a wrong fear. And instead of responding to the invitation, they stayed at a distance. So on one hand, God is drawing near to them. He's inviting them to draw near. And on the other hand, they've just heard the weight of all of these commandments. Oh my. To serve Yahweh is nothing short of complete and total allegiance. And you wonder, don't you, if their promise, that big, bold promise in chapter 19, verse 8, all that the Lord says we will do, Does that promise haunt them? They've experienced firsthand the holiness of God, and at the same time, the the weight of their sins exposed before God spoke. Their first impulse was to run to him, to investigate, to look closer, to sneak a peek, and now the impulse is to run away, to never hear God's voice again. When it comes to your posture toward the Lord, your first impulse may not be the right impulse. This leads us to the second principle taught in the passage. And that is that God must explain to us how to approach him. They want Moses to speak to him. And so he does. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. It almost sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? A contradiction in terms. Do not fear, but make sure that you fear. And you think, oh, I bet there's some clever play on words taking place in Hebrew. No, it's exactly the same word. Do not fear, but fear. Clearly, there are two types of fear. There is a fear that drives you away, and then there's a fear that draws you near. On the one hand, do not fear. Do not fear those sights and sounds of God's voice. Do not let those be the things which drives you away. Why not? 
Because that's actually evidence of God's presence with you. His choosing this slave nation to be his own. His past deliverance means that this is a scene of grace. It's a scene of promise. It's a scene of welcome. It's a scene of relationship. Do not throw away all of that for fear. And that's true for you as well. Just because you hear God's word, just because you feel the weight of your own sin and conviction, and you feel genuine guilt over those past sins, do not let that fear drive you away from Christ. Why not? Because in Christ, God has made his presence known. So that even your awareness of your guilt becomes a scene which is, which is ripe for grace and promise and welcome and relationship. His presence is this constant offer of salvation. Just come back to Christ again. The other kind of fear that Moses speaks of is clearly something that's different. And it's a fear which is understood by the word test in verse 20. Test makes sense of everything that they've seen and heard. This is a test. Not like test in school. Not like the kind of test that you and I might grow to hate. This is going to tell whether or not I know my stuff. This is a pass or a fail. Now, when the Lord tests his people in the scriptures, it is actually his action to draw them into deeper grace and knowledge of the Lord, to move you along, to help you know him more, to learn to rightly respond. Verse 20 says, this is a test. For what purpose is the test? That you may not sin. Stated positively, that you might learn to obey the voice of the Lord. Hence, one pastor said there is a certain type of fear you ought not have when coming to the Lord. But there is another type of fear that you ought never to be without. Here's a test that teaches you about this other kind of biblical fear. And everything about the scene at Mount Sinai says, Yahweh's not a God to be trifled with. Do not underestimate him. Do not toy with him. Do not take him lightly. God must explain to us how to approach him. It's reverence. But it is not a distant, cool, thoughtless reverence. Fear is a better word here. And it's the kind of fear that motivates an actual removal of sin. One Old Testament scholar equates it for us in a way that I think is really helpful. He says, you know, fear of death or injury causes people to drive more safely than they would. Fear of a heart attack helps people to watch their cholesterol levels and keep them low, to be careful about what they eat. Fear of academic failure helps people study and learn. He says fear is actually a basic motivator for human beings. So God's people are terrified. That's not altogether bad. God's point, your fear, your reverence and awe at this moment must not drive you away from me. Rather, it must be a glimpse of my holiness to move you in fear to the thoughts that I would never want to disobey this God. I wonder if you and I have any sense of God's 
holiness. Certainly this side of the cross, we understand much more about forgiveness. We understand more about the once and for all atoning sacrifice of Christ. You know about Jesus. You know about his finished work. But do you retain anything of a sense of God's holiness? The kind of holiness, the kind of sense of holiness that God would recognize as fear. Well, how would you know? How would you know if you had that kind of fear in your heart? Well, verse 20 says that your posture towards sin would tell you exactly that. Do you want to dismantle the idols that are in your life because you fear that those idols would be a competitor to the holy God? Do you watch the way you speak and and are you afraid to use God's name in vain, afraid to offend his splendor? You make the Lord's day a priority for worship and rest because at some level, you don't want to be one who ignores words that he has said to you. Do you guard against the hatred and the, the bitterness of the heart because you fear taking an assault against someone else who bears God's image? Do you take radical approaches to your lusts If you're married, do you do everything in your power to help foster faithfulness and sexual integrity for you and your spouse? And then do you do those things out of a reverent desire to picture the faithfulness of Christ and his church? Do you foster a stewardship toward all of God's gifts, whether they are financial or otherwise, because you fear a flaunting attitude toward the Lord that says, I don't trust you i got to grab hold of everything that I can possibly get. Of course, we could go on through every other commandment, but you get the point. When it comes to sin, I wonder if most of us have any category at all in our thinking for fear of offending the majestic holy God. This is held up against what you already know. There's so many times in the Bible where God says to his people, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. And most of those are related to your circumstances. They're meant actually to comfort you. And you know as Christians that those those promises are actually a treasure for us. Okay, Lord, I believe you. I will not fear. And then you come to a moment where God says, When you consider sin, I really think you should learn to fear. It's a totally different statement. He's saying your relationship with me must be your first priority. We're talking about healthy fear. First principle, when it comes to your posture toward the Lord, your first impulse may not be the right impulse. Second principle, God must explain to us how to approach him. Third principle, the mediator must move on your behalf. Look at verse 21. It says, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick cloud where God was. Now, listen, chapter 19 and chapter 20 both begin with God's name, Elohim. He doesn't say Yahweh at this moment because he's not expressing here his covenant relational name. He's stressing his name as the righteous God of the whole earth. And in the name of the God of the whole earth, he says, the law is given. 
And here we come to the end of chapter 20, and the point is obvious. The righteous God really does judge sin. That's why the people stood far off. But it's not just a divine command. It actually is a, it's something that they recognize themselves. When people get in trouble with the law, the first thing they do is get a lawyer. They do not want to represent themselves before the judge. And so it's no surprise that in this cry of the Hebrew people, upon hearing God's law from the voice of the righteous judge himself, they say, we need an attorney. We need a mediator. We need someone to stand before us. And there's this thick cloud before the Lord, and they say, who would dare approach the holy God? And Moses says, I will. Because that's what a mediator does. He draws near to God as the representative of God's people. Now, why does any of this so long ago matter to you and me? I mean, you're not facing Mount Sinai. You don't have any sense of the sights and and the sounds which they heard on that day. It matters because, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, no mere man since the fall is able in this life to perfectly keep the commands of God, but he daily breaks them in thought and word and deed. It's been said, what you need is a good lawyer. And this is how the law leads you to the gospel. It condemns you for your sin so that you start looking for some legal remedy. And here's the comfort. God always provides for his people the mediator that they need, one who will move on your behalf, which is why we read Romans 8, 3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son. Friends, your mediator is Christ. Or else you have no mediator. Or else you face Mount Sinai and you must obey every commandment perfectly. It's a terrifying thought. You dare not approach God without a mediator. But do you see what the judge has done? He's offered you Christ. To enter into the presence of the Holy One. Here's the conclusion of this first point. God extends an invitation for a relationship. But you are not welcomed loosely or casually. And you're not welcomed on your own merit. A healthy fear means that you have a grasp for the condemnation that your sin deserves. And yet you draw near to God through Christ. Your relationship to the Lord must be your first priority. Healthy fear. Next, acceptable worship. Look at verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked to you from heaven. And so in verses 22 through 26, we have uh, three more principles. And this time these are related to worship. And the first is this. While you dwell on earth, God is known by word, but not by sight. I mentioned earlier that from here through chapter 24, Moses listens to God. He turns and he speaks to the people what God has said. That's actually what they wanted. 
At verse 22, this whole new section of Exodus begins, this case law. It's a detailed description of various scenarios that may arise. And here's how you need to handle this situation. But first, God says, let me remind you, make sure you know that I am the one who spoke with you from heaven. It was my words. And the fact that God revealed himself through his word is both serious and gracious at the same time. It's serious because these are not Moses' thoughts. It always matters more what God says than what mankind thinks. Critical scholars approach the Bible with this posture that simply presumes doubt. Well, it's an old book. I mean, it couldn't possibly be true. Modern reader comes to the Bible and he says, well, the Bible might contain some useful principles, but it's not actually from God, the internal testimony of the Bible says it is true, and it is God's word. But it's gracious too, isn't it? I mean, this is not some localized deity who came down just once on Mount Sinai for some ancient clan who is now deceased. This is the God of heaven who governs the universe and the stars and the galaxies and the hair on your head. And he says, I'm speaking to you. That's essential for you and me. God is going to tell us with his own word what we must know, both his character and his worship. And so when well-meaning Christians spend their lives kind of looking for some higher invisible sign that everybody else doesn't have, looking to make God visible in worship, whether through pictures or through statues, or hoping to see the Lord in dreams and visions, they are in effect saying, God, your word is actually not enough. I can't be content in this life to simply know you in the ways that you've actually revealed yourself. Now, every believer really does understand a sense of deep longing to see the face of God. You know that. But as created beings who bear his image, that longing is not a wrong longing. And yet, while you dwell on earth, God is known by word. Which is why we must become people of the word. People who actually read and study and know it. Second principle. You and I come to worship not because God is lacking in glory, but because you need it. Listen carefully to the words, you and your in verse 23 and 24. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep and your oxen. In every place I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. Your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen, and to be clear, it is not out of the blue that I'm going to make it possible for you to come to remember me. I will cause you to know me. And every time I cause you to remember me, again, I'm drawing near to bless you. And there's so much abundant love and grace in this text. He just saved them from lifelong slavery in Egypt. And his grace in coming to them is making, them, making himself known. And he speaks to them. And grace is meant to move them to a heart of thanks. But this repetition, you and your, 
God says, I don't actually need your worship. I don't need your sacrifices. As if I am lacking something. In fact, in heaven alone, I receive the glory that's due my name. He says, worship is for you. It is my provision for you to express feelings of love and gratitude to me. Do you believe this? That you need public worship to help you express feelings of love and gratitude to God? That you need the expressions of public worship more than God does? I promise if you believe this, you would not feel guilty about missing worship. You wouldn't go to other people and tell them your excuses. You'd just feel desperate. I missed worship. I got to get back to church. And yet, even among some of those within the church, those who are the most committed Christians, the one who really love their church, there's so many excuses week after week, month after month for why they can't make it to worship. Well, this week I've got a wedding. It's out of town. Next week, my kids have a travel ball tournament. This week, I've got to go down to the beach. I've got to get some stuff done at our beach house or our lake house or our condo or our farm. You recognize, of course, that worship is not because God needs it. God's going to reign on his throne. Whether or not you bring him the worship that he deserves, you need worship with public expression. And you need it because you're going to worship something. One of the things that you could worship could fill your soul with life. The other could suck your life and demand more and more and more of your servitude. Our third principle is found in verse 23 and 24 also. And it is this, your most well-thought-out, well-intentioned, zealous thoughts on worship are forbidden unless God has prescribed them first. Worship of the Lord is not open to your imagination. You recognize, don't you, that verses 23, that verse 23 is kind of a restatement of the first and second commandments. Yahweh says, I'm your only God. More than that, if it makes sense to you to try to depict me in statues of silver or gold, don't do it. That's what pagans do. In fact, in a matter of days and weeks, Aaron is going to bring together the idol, I mean, a, a cow made from the gold and silver that the people harvested. And it's going to come from a heart that sounds like this. We need something to help us feel like God is close. We have not heard from him in a while. He's a great God. He's worthy of gold. That would be beautiful. And for an altar, a place to burn these offerings, God literally says, just pile up some dirt. Just get a high spot there in the dirt. I don't want stones, especially handcrafted stones. And here's a little tip for you. When you come to the Bible and you see something that you go, I don't really know why this would be here. This doesn't seem to make sense. In those first five books of the Bible, when you encounter something like this, God is saying this, do not be like the pagans. You just worship me in a simple, ordinary way. 
And so the issue of Moses climbing up on stones in verse 26, climbing up on well-constructed stones that have been carved out, his skirt hanging open and people, whoop, there's Moses. The reason he has to say that is because when mankind tries to come up with a way to worship God, he will always do it in a way that is distracting and shameful and actually embarrassing because he then becomes the object that people notice. It's sobering, actually, because in every other area of your life, you expect to get credit for good intentions. You expect to receive credit for zeal or for how you feel. But God says, I accept your worship only when you offer it as I prescribe. So one pastor said the measure of worship is not in how you feel about worship, but in how God feels, or rather thinks. That's, of course, not to say that emotions have no place in worship. They do. In fact, all of the Scripture, God speaks with language, which is meant to to pull upon your heart. He invites you to come and to worship Him with a heart which is overflowing with gratitude and thanks. Emotions are really beautiful. They are simply not the measure of acceptable worship. God's way is the measure. And so if you come to this church and you do not feel a particular tingling on your neck or you walk away and you say, well, I I didn't get any chill bumps like I did at the other church down the street. It is not because no one here has ever figured out that emotions would make you feel that you would come near to God. That's so obvious Everyone knows that. But it's because worship must be guided in exactly the way that God prescribes it. In the very elements that he sets forward. And so in coming weeks, we're going to learn about various sacrifices and priests and tabernacles. That's what God provided in the Old Testament. Those were all signs pointing to Christ pointing us to a spotless lamb who was sacrificed to pay for sins so that now our our worship is so very ordinary. These ordinary means like the word of God and prayer and the sacraments. So very simple and yet so very beautiful because you understand, don't you, that's a healthy fear that leads us to acceptable worship. Because when you encounter the depths of your sin, you will cry out for a mediator to stand between you and a holy God. And in Christ, God provides that mediator. So the the Bible teaches us, let us worship God through this mediator. Here's the conclusion of this last point. Acceptable worship is offered through Christ. In a moment, we're going to come to a table where a healthy fear and acceptable worship converge in the sacrifice of Christ. Totally ordinary. An ordinary cracker, an ordinary taste of wine, picturing the body and the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, having caused us to see our sin, we cry out to you, that you would give us a full and true taste and nourish our souls upon our Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have made it clear that we cannot approach you on our own.
So we approach you through Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.